Hello, hello. This is the On The Movie Front Podcast. I am your host, Robert. I am your host, Michael. I'm Phil. And I'm Chris. And we have the gang all back from last week. Today is Saturday afternoon, very rainy day, so we're going to spend our time podcasting instead of outside, you know, gallivanting about. We have an interesting episode for you today. We have a couple of movie reviews. Sheen saw Limitless, and he's going to review 127 Hours. I was only able to watch Shane, so I'll talk about that. Then we're going to go through our extended review, which is the main topic of the podcast episode, which we're going to talk about, Black Swan. And then we'll go on to some movie news, talk about our dumb movie of the week. Stay tuned, and you'll find out. And then we'll do some flick chart battling. All right, so let's get started. Let's do it. I'm going to start up by talking about Shane. Now, my friend, my good friend Michael Petrison has been on my case for years to watch this movie because this is his favorite movie of all time. And because when someone says that to me, I don't like to watch that movie ever. But eventually I got around to it, and this was a movie made in 1953, <clears throat> and it's pretty much your classic Western. And if you, you know, familiarize yourself with the AFI top movies of all time, this is easily one of the best Westerns on every single list. And rightfully so. Shane is a very complex story. That, that it's, it's basically a traditional Western, though, with a lot of layers on it. Um, I'll just go through a quick recap of the plot. There's a, uh, the main guy, his name is Shane. He's kind of a drifter. He, walk, he waltz in to the, the, the farmer's uh, estate. And he's, he's, you know, he just he stays, has some dinner with them. And in the meantime, there's a, there's a gang led by Riker who's trying to buy out all of the, um, the countrymen's estates so he can have his ox uh, run about. Of course, uh, the, the couple of Joe and Marion, they don't want to leave, and they have a, a, an adorable young son. His name is Joey. And so they try to, they try to propose um, a deal so they don't have to leave. But so it goes. Riker and his gang keep on bullying them. They burn down houses. They, they try to, you know, shoo them off the estate. So Shane comes along, and it's going to be the hero of the movie. Now, what I really liked about this movie so much is that on top of it being, you know, you have your classic Western plotline, like here's the hero, this is the, the townspeople that need help, uh, the hero just comes in on his horse, he's a, he's a great gunslinger, he's, he's, you know, but he's troubled at the same time. Every single character has flaws, and I feel like with a lot of Westerns, you know, you have your, your badass, and he has no flaw. He just he just walks in and he's able to shoot everyone without without a worry that he's going to die. With this movie, you never know. Shane isn't. Um, I mean, the lead character Shane was played by Alan Ladd, and he's not a big big strong guy. He's kind of he's kind of timid, and he 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 comes across as a very sensitive guy at first. He gets bullied around at the saloon, and he doesn't he doesn't hold his ground, and he allows the the, the gang to to push him around until the very last second. And that's something that happens throughout the entire movie. Shane is, he almost takes a back seat to all the action that's going on until the very last second where, you know, the, the, the bad guys are going to push the line. And then he steps in and makes his impact. Um, <clears throat> another thing that really made this film interesting, in my opinion, was the relationship between Shane and uh, Marion, which was the, the wife of the farmer's couple. And they had, they had a very strange and uh, a very very um, obvious attraction towards each other, but <clears throat> it seems that they respected the, uh, the, the main house guy, uh, Joe. They, they respected Joe so much that they weren't going to do anything about it. They, they never kissed. They, they hardly touch. 
Um, and the, the, fi the final thing about this movie that made it stand out from all the other traditional westerns was the role of Joey. Joey, uh, the little cute little boy, you know, he looks at Shane like he's his idol. He is in awe whenever Shane does something, whenever he talks, whenever he shoots, whenever he rides his horse. He wants to be just like him. And it's almost like Shane had that opportunity to even replace Joe as the father, father role. And uh, but he never does that because uh, I want to believe that he respected Joe way too much to to get in the way of this domesticated family. So all in all, it's a great movie. Of course, I'm going to give it an A. I would give it an A plus. It's uh, it's a classic, one of the best westerns I've ever watched, and I recommend it to anyone that loves westerns. So wait, are you giving it an A or an A plus? <laughs> There's no A plus, so we're giving it an A. <laughs> There's not an A plus? No. You don't get A pluses in college. Well, we've been giving A minuses. <laughs> I don't know how that's a point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, A. Hey, well, the best score it can, a movie can get. I'm very impressed by that, uh, that you would give uh, a movie such... Well, I mean, credit. I, I yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of westerns. Some people just don't like westerns. So out of all the westerns I've watched, you know, Butch Cassidy's up there, Unforgiven's up there, but Shane just it really does stand out. I've I've even I've, I uh I reviewed High Noon a couple episodes ago, and that was good, but not as good as Shane. Wow. Okay. What's the like? I know you're saying the the one guy, um, he said Riker is mm -hmm. trying to take over. Is that the main conflict? Just. He's taking over, and Shane's right, some that's random a, guy that's going to stop yeah, him. Yeah, that's like the traditional Western conflict. Uh, Riker and his gang are just trying to get all these country folk out of their, their estates so he can have his bull and ox just run around and uh, freely roam the fields. So they have to kind of stand up to this, this, this bad guy figure. Mm. And, um, yeah, essentially, like, yeah, he's the bad guy, and Shane and everyone else are the good guys, and they try to, you know, stand their ground. I found it interesting... That you were saying atypical to normal westerns or normal kind of movie storylines, Shane is a little weaker, at least in the beginning. You said he's he second guesses or he's not as confident, or you watching, you're not as confident in him. How do they avoid that becoming frustrating for the viewer to watch? Like, I go into a movie, I, if I constantly see the main guy failing and then finally at the end he's gonna succeed, by the time I get there, it's like, ugh. You know, how did they. It's not so much. It's not so much of him failing. It's like there's a scuffle going on, and Shane's kind of just taking a back seat, watching this scuffle going on. And then you're kind of watching the movie, and you're almost like shouting at the screen. Shane, just jump in there, help them out, help them out. Oh. And he doesn't do it until like the very last second, and then he kind of okay, saves the okay. day, type of thing. Do you think he's a likable character, Shane? I think. Well, I know. I, I was a little bit. Uh, I was distraught. I was distraught about that because I, he's very likable in the sense that yeah, he you know he's the hero in the film. He's very handsome. He, but but at the same time, like you know, it was driving me wild because the way that he had the potential to essentially break up this family. He could have. There was there was a. Um, okay, I'm going to kind of spoil the movie here though. But there's a there's a moment toward, towards the conclusion where Joe, uh, the husband and the father of Joey, he was going to confront Riker, uh, uh, once and for all, just just confront them and basically. Everyone, you, you knew that if he went by himself, he was going to die. And Shane knew that, too. And he first was like, you know, you shouldn't go type of thing. I'll go for you. But Joe was so proud, and he just he had to stand his ground. He was so proud of, of, of himself, and he wanted to do this for his family. He was going to go. So right there, Shane, you know, could have just let him go. Yeah. Go, go get, get your ass kicked by Riker, get killed. And who would have easily just slipped into that new father role but Shane? 
you know, but he just had so much respect for Joe, and that, in a sense, made you just like Shane so much better, so much more. And you knew that uh, after he Shane did you know save the day, he couldn't stay around anymore because there was a, a theme throughout the film where Shane's trying to hang up his gun. He's not trying to get in, he's not trying to be violent anymore. Though he's a very talented gunslinger, and he's pretty much you know if you, once you kill someone you know then there's no there's no going back to where you are. So after he killed people there, he he just rode off. You know, classic western, riding off into the sunset type mm. of ending. Mm. But uh, yeah, yeah, the, the the depth of each character was great, especially Shane. And that's why this movie, I think, it's just like stands out. Okay, cool. All right, so uh, I'm going to talk about Limitless. This is a movie starring Bradley Cooper and uh, and Robert De Niro, um, as long as as well as a, a cast of other characters that Bradley Cooper uh, encounters during the movie. What the what the film is about is um, Bradley Cooper plays this character. Uh, I, I believe his name is Ben, and he basically his life is in shambles. He's got a book deal. But uh, for the most part, he just spends that time and money drinking. Um, he, you know, has a failed relationship, and uh, he also has a. He was uh, engaged prior. Um, his ex fiance hates him now. And uh, so one day, you know, when he's kind of out drinking, he bumps into uh, his ex wife's, uh, his ex fiance's uh, brother, <coughs> and they start talking. And he knew that the ex that that this gentleman uh, used to deal drugs so uh, he asks him if he's still doing that uh, I guess in, in, in hopes that he can score some cocaine or something to kind of ease his pain <coughs> but the the ex-brother um, gives him uh, this other new drug that he tells him is FDA approved uh, and uh, lets you use the whole capacity of your brain as opposed to the 20% we as humans use now uh, skeptical you know uh, he take Bradley Cooper takes the drug, goes home and thinks about it, and uh, just kind of figures, you know, what the hell, gives it a shot. Within 30 seconds, he immediately feels um, like he can see the future almost. He can, he just has an idea of what needs to happen, as he says in the film. He needs, he has a clear idea of what he wants to do and how to do it, and he just goes. And the movie takes off from there, and it's just kind of like a freight train of, of uh, events. You know, he finishes his book in four days. Um, he gets his life together, he's, he's getting paid, he gets a second book deal, he buys suits, he gets a haircut, you know, he cleans his house, he, he does all these things, um, to just better himself, then he, you know, but then it wears off, um, a couple days later, and so he goes back to, um, to get some more drugs from, from the, the brother guy character, and, uh, while he's there, um, the brother asks him, okay, you know, I'll give you, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about making a deal, but you need to just go get me, uh, go get my shirts pressed, and go get me a sandwich. So when he returns, the brother has been killed, and the house has been ramshacked. Um, you know, obviously people searching for this drug that this guy was selling. So, uh, you know, Bradley Cooper calls the police, doesn't know what to do, and, uh, in the meantime, he, he has this idea about trying to search for the drugs himself, and, uh, and he does eventually find them because of something the brother said to him. So I won't go too much more into uh, plot uh, details from here on out because, uh, you know, it's a very interesting movie. Um, a lot of crazy things happen. Robert De Niro, well, I'll give you a little bit more information. Robert De Niro comes into the movie later when Bradley Cooper has kind of uh, made a lot more money um, in the stock market. And uh, Robert De Niro hires Bradley Cooper to work for his company. And uh, so Robert De Niro's character kind of gives the opportunity for Bradley Cooper to... Uh, 
flourish to become like a million times better than he was and, and, and start making millions of dollars and be involved in these high, you know, uh, high, uh, what do you call it? high executive trades. So it's really, really interesting. And w the point of this movie really is that, um, you know, what would you do if you had this power to unlock the, your thought process in your brain so you could do anything you wanted, you know? Would you would you use it like Bradley Cooper does in the beginning and, and, and do your passion, write your book, you know, uh, get your life in order? Or as he does later in the film, kind of, you know, turn it into making millions and millions of dollars. You know, it, it becomes about him making money more so than, uh, than actually doing his passion and stuff like that. And it's a very interesting question that this, uh, this movie presents and, you know, it, it makes you think about. And essentially, without giving away, you know, too much um, from other stuff, other plot line about the the film. You know, it kind of you get presented with a, a question. You know, like as the movie title, the movie's title um, implies. You know, it's limitless. This drug, you could do anything you want, um, and the consequences that come with that that you wouldn't necessarily think about and that you see. Uh, you know, about interpersonal relationships getting. You know next because of, of things that you're doing just because to, you want to earn more money and, and become more powerful, etc., etc. It's a really, really interesting film. There's a lot of action that takes place, too, involving another drug dealer that gets involved and finds out about the drug and, and takes it himself and uh, starts becoming so smart. You know, he's, he was a normal street thug, and now he's, like, you know, making running a, a, a car, a, a theft um, company, and, and he's going to, you know, branch out and start investing himself. So there's a lot of cool things that happen in the movie. Um, I thought Bradley Cooper did a really good job. I thought the writing was really good. There's a few plot uh, points that are, I guess are, are are holes in the plot, but they're just so it's so the movie's so enjoyable that you kind of can look past them and uh, and just you know really enjoy the ride and 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 really think about you know this uh, this conundrum that Bradley Cooper is in is like you know what do you do with all this power and. Uh, and also, the drug becomes very addicting, and if you're not on it, it makes you throw up, and you could uh, actually die from not taking the drug anymore. So, you know, it, you, you see this, you know, this um, parallel with, you know, real-life drugs like heroin, where it's, you know, when you're not on it, you're just, you're, you're sick, and you can't, you know, you can't function well. So it's like, you know, you make the choice. Do you just take a drug and feel better? Or do you get yourself clean and, and go back to uh, feeling, you know, quote-unquote normal? So it's really, really interesting drug, uh, a movie. Um, it has uh, it makes you think about a lot of things, and I did not expect that from this film. You know, I thought it was just kind of going to be entertainment. And it is for a, a lot of it, but it has a lot weightier messages in the film. And, and also, um, talk a little bit about the cinematography. Um, there's a lot of, lot of fast shots in the opening uh, sequence of the film it's uh, it's kind of hard to explain you need to see it but it's fascinating um, it's just this one long probably about four or five minute montage of uh, shots within shots um, kind of like a kaleidoscope and it's just awesome and they do similar things like that throughout the movie you know he'll be walking in you know one door and then he'll skip forward four days and be wearing the same suit, and you're kind of wondering, you know, well, how did he get here and why, and he doesn't know himself um, sometimes because he's just been so focused on achieving his goals.
But it's a really interesting movie. There's really a lot, a lot of stuff to go to talk about. So uh, okay. I would, I would rate it uh, an A minus. <laughs> really? That yeah, high? I, I really high. thought it was a very good, very good movie. I'm sorry. For, from everything you just said, what was the main conflict of the movie? I was going to ask the exact same thing. Because it seemed like you were telling me, you know, what he was doing with the drug and everything, but I, I didn't really hear a conflict in the film. Um, I mean, I guess there's not really one main conflict. There's a lot of, there's many conflicts in the film. It's it's kind so of more realistic, like life, you know. I mean, it's just I guess the the thing would be the drug, you know, what like what he deals with, how, how to deal with taking this drug, you know, what what do you do. What do you do when you're not taking it, you know? Is he the only one taking it in this movie? Um, That's what I don't understand, too, because it looked like... Like, you see the preview? I have not seen it. It's just like, okay, he's down on his luck, he finds his drug, he has this high, and of course, you know, the down is coming somewhere. And I'm like, do I really want to see that? Yeah, maybe the high will be fun to see for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that's why I wanted to ask the same thing with the conflict. And also, just from your explanation, it sounds like he's the only one... And you said he took it once, and then it wore off. Mm-hmm. Did he take it again? Oh, yeah. And then you said he was dealing with that. But again, is he the only one taking it in the movie? And then you said other people are I, trying to get it. I, I don't, don't I can't, you know, I don't know how much I want to give away by, by <laughs> answering that question. Uh, there, well, are, there are some other people in that, that take it, but very, very few. Because it's, it's a very rare drug. But the brothers just... I don't know. I don't want to keep <laughs> it. It seems it seems off. Did you uh, <laughs> was Bradley Cooper's character likable in the film? Because it seems like if I had a pill that could do anything, I might try to cure cancer or something like that instead of make myself millions of dollars. Is is he kind of that type of selfish person, or is he a likable character? Because you know, if you do have limitless powers, you would probably do better for the world than just concerned about yourself. Yeah, you know, he's not necessarily the most likable person. Um, you know, you definitely get that impression that he's a very selfish guy. He does things that make you see that he's human and cares, but it's not so much about his character in this film. When you watch it, it's, it's more about the experiences that he's going through. And you can't help but, but be sucked into and almost feel yourself as the character more so than seeing, you know, identifying with him, which is, I think, why they kind of tried to make him almost a little generic in, in certain ways, where it's just like you, you're just kind of thrust in without really getting too much exposure to who he is. You know, you get these ideas and you're like, okay, it's someone like the rest of us in society, who are not, or, or most of us in the middle class at least, who are not doing so well right now, and, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have this solution, and... and, and we have all these things that are disposable, disposal, and it's kind of that American dream, you know. It, it it's very kind of it, it feeds into that ideal, and that's why I think it's so fascinating because it, you know, you really I couldn't help but think I was him during the movie and, and feel myself going through these different experiences, and and find myself like when when he's without the drug and he's all he can think about is getting more, getting more, and you want him to get more in the film. It's it's weird, you know. I. I usually don't relate to drug use because I don't do it. But I, when I watch it in films and see people like trying to struggle for, for to get that next fix, I'm not always sympathetic to that, you know. But in this film, for whatever reason, they, they find a way to identify with us, and I I feel that I'm like, oh my god, I I want him to get another another portion of this drug. 
So it's interesting like that. Do you think they're kind of like hinting at those, you know, those creative people that need drugs or have used drugs and alcohol to kind of enlighten their creative abilities and to Absolutely. make themselves famous? I, I, I definitely think brilliant. there's, you know, uh, I guess you would call it like an allegory toward that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's so many, there's so many mm-hmm. underlying things in this movie. Which, that's why, you know, I give it such a high rating, because oftentimes, you know, with these action movies or these entertainment movies, they're just that. They're just entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, when you can get a movie that does both and makes you think, a lot of times, like what Christopher Nolan does with his homes, you know, you're sitting there thinking and enjoying, uh, then it's just that much better. So, yeah. I would also like to move on to my review of 127 Hours. Um, I'm just going to spoil this movie because I feel like you can't spoil this movie. So I'm just going to talk about it in depth and in case you haven't seen well, it. You, know you, could, story. you could fast forward it. So James Franco uh, plays this hiker, uh, this person who's an adrenaline junkie. Um, he goes out to uh, to explore the, the canyons. And, uh, you know, he on his journey, he meets uh, up with these two girls. And he's out there and he kind of shows them this, like, hidden... Uh, pond uh, within the canyons and uh, so they're having a great time you know and he he says to them you know oh I'll maybe I'll come by to your party tonight Um, and then he goes on his way and about four minutes later he uh, he trips and falls down a a, a, what would you call it Rob a a hole (laughs) chasm yeah (laughs) a chasm in the rocks Um, and his arm and a boulder uh, well not really a boulder but a, a rock traps his arm and uh, he's stuck, and so uh, that's pretty much the whole movie. Yep, that's pretty much <laughs> what the whole movie is entails. But this uh, is based on a true story. Yeah, yeah this, this is based on a true story. I have not seen the movie. Okay. Yet. So it's just interesting. You watch him, you know, over the period of I think five days, um, or four and a half days, whatever 127 hours actually is. And you know, just him going through that. Uh, he has a limited supply of water. Uh, extremely limited supply of food. I think he's only got one meal or, or two meals on him. And, uh, you know, he starts having, he has flashbacks, he hallucinates, you know, at one point he thinks he actually escapes the the, the hole, that, you know, the trap that he's in. And, um, yeah, it's just, he records, like, these little videos to his mom and dad, and uh, you can see he starts to go crazy at some points. And, you know, he makes, toward the end of the movie, about an hour in, he makes or comes up with the idea to take off his arm, uh, but he only has his tiny little tools because he, in the beginning of the film, one of the very first things you see is he forgets his uh, Swiss Army knife. So he takes this, you know, as he calls it, a made-in-China piece of crap, <laughs> um, multi-tool, and it's basically, the best way to expo- uh, describe it to people out there is like a tiny butter knife on it. I mean, this thing is not going to do anything. <laughs> He he's trying for like a good five minutes to saw at his arm, and he just makes these That's like little red marks. That's because in the beginning he was chiseling at the rock. For yeah. The first two days, he's th- he thinks he can actually chisel the rock so but he can squeeze his hand. But out that of it. tool um, <clears throat> is not actually a knife. Right. Right. That 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 tool is, is meant to uh, pry things apart. Essentially, like you're supposed to shove it in something and, and and be able to get it open up so you can get the pliers in there. That's the uh, that's right. the idea behind the tool. Um, so it's you know it's not meant to cut things, but it does have a l- tiny little point at the end of it. So anyway, so uh, and here's the big spoiler. Uh, he, he does eventually 
take his arm off and cuts it off. Uh, he breaks it, uh, his arm against the rocks first, and then uh, goes at it <laughs> with a couple of the other tools in the in the multi-tool thing, and and just gets it free. Ties him, you know, he uh, ties his arm off so the so the it won't bleed too much, and then uh, he gets out and eventually finds some people in his rescue. Um, yeah, and that's it. That's the plot of the movie. I I would give this movie a B. Um, I wasn't that impressed with it. I I, I thought you know. Uh, I thought the story was excellent. I mean, it's uh, you know based on a true story, and it's amazing that someone could w- withstand that uh, that type of you know torture, uh, essentially being stuck in one place. And what would you do? And you know, it's a it's a cautionary tale to other people. Don't go hiking by yourself. You know, mm. don't don't go out there. You know, or or tell people where you're gonna be. And that's all that's all well and great. But you know, it's. A pretty much a one note movie. I guess maybe you gotta, you know, you should know that going into it, but still to me it just didn't make the movie any better. Mm-hmm. I thought uh, the filming was great, the cinematography was really cool, um, but uh, ultimately I thought the movie was a little flat, you know. I guess because there's only so much you can do stuck in a place like that. Uh, I thought it would be more character study type, you know, because James Franco was nominated for the Oscar for it. Um, and I thought he did a good job, you know, I, I thought he did a really good job, but you don't get to know too much about who this person is, or really care too much about him, um, you know, mm. until, until really till the end, you know, then you're like really, you're relieved that he's out of there and really happy for him, but I didn't, I didn't connect with him so much, and I don't blame that on James Franco, I think that that's more of the writing, you know, I, th- I feel like the movie would have been better served if we saw more about him before he decided to go on this track. Um, but that's really my only gripe with the film. Right, I mean, <clears throat> I uh, I saw this in the theaters, and I like this film a lot more than Sheehan does. Um, it was kind of a film, I would say last year, of all the films I saw in the theaters, this was probably top three movie experience that I've you know, out of all the movies I've seen, this gave me one of the best movie experiences of last year. And <clears throat> there's something about it. Like, okay, you're, you're right. There's not too much character study or background of Franco's character, which I think his name is Aaron, right? In, yeah, in real life? Yeah, his name is Aaron, yeah. So, but, but it does, it just amazed me that kind of like, you know the entire movie is just going to be him down there stuck. And like, how can they fill two hours of this? And it's like this is this this is Franco's you know castaway of Tom Hanks. I was just gonna say this is this this is his movie. He's in every single scene by himself. (laughs) But that's not true. He's not in every single scene. Well, basically every single scene. He's in ninety five percent of the movie. (laughs) I hate I hate to just argue with you, but he's only probably in eighty five percent of the movie by himself. No, seriously. What scenes is he not in? In in all all the intercut flashbacks, he's never he's he's rarely actually in them. Okay, you see the other people. Uh, you know, in a couple of them, you get to see him. There's a lot of shots of of the boulders and the animals and 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 stuff like that. You know, like there's the raven that he talks about that flies overhead and stuff like that. So he's not in those scenes. I mean, uh, you know, okay, every I, I sequence know. that isn't a landscape shot or a transition sequence, and besides him hallucinating, which you know, it's it's his mind. So in a sense, he's kind of in those scenes as well as he's thinking it all. Yes, so. I mean, <laughs> he uh, it's his movie. I mean, it's based on the book that was written about the uh, the true life adventure of this in, in insanely miraculous story of him cutting off his arm. And I don't know, I thought Danny Boyle did a really good job in this film. Just, I, I laughed. I actually laughed a lot more than I expected to in this film. I thought his character was pretty funny. 
and kind of like you know he kind of got to the point where he's just like I am hopeless. <laughs> he just you know he starts you, you kind of laugh at yourself whenever you p get yourself in a horrible situation because there's nothing else to do. And then finally those moments when you know he's almost basically on his last string of hope, and you just I I felt horrible. He's just like you know he just he just puts everything out there and he records it. And I guess just in case someone would, were to find it, he's just like, you know, just completely giving up hope. I'm so sorry. I should have done this. I should have been a better son. I should have done... Like, oh, man, that hit me hard. That hit me hard. That, I thought that was a really emotional portion of the film. And, um, I mean, as, I mean it's, not, it's not a groundbreaking film. It's not the greatest film ever. But I thought it was a lot more entertaining and uh, a, lot, a lot better, you know, well-made than uh, you gave credit for. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't, you know, knock it how it was made I think it was very well made like I said the cinematography was, was great and you know I think the acting was really great I just feel that you know that you know with those moments we are talking about where he's like saying you know oh mom I wish I could have been uh, a better son the only like reasoning behind that is because he didn't answer one phone call like that's the only thing you know about it, so it's like I mean that's I don't what you know. Assume, but then I, I again, can make all kinds of assumptions. Side, but it's like you're not you're not shown right. that he's been a bad son or that his but his relationship with his mother is any good. You know, like we don't know but how that she's quote been is what that's that's what you're supposed to assume <laughs> that he he has kind of maybe a, maybe he hasn't talked to his parents in a while. Maybe he doesn't have the 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 lovely relationship as he does as most families do. Maybe. But that's so many maybes. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just. My point is that for me, that doesn't necessarily make me feel more when he says something like that. Okay. I mean, I want to. Like, I want to say, like, oh my god, you know, he's so. I, and I and I get it from his point of view, like as a character, as, or you know, thinking about yourself, you're like, man, you know, I would say that. I, I know if I, no matter how good my relationship with that, maybe I never miss a phone call by my mom, but I still would say, I wish I could have been a better son. You still have that epiphany, if you will, that you want, you know, you wish you were a better person and you'll change things, and that's kind of what he has this revelation about, because he comes across as kind of a selfish guy, to a point, mm -hmm. um, because there's this relationship with a girl that's kind of intercut through the, through the film, and, and uh, how she, like, doesn't, isn't really um, given the attention by him that is deserved or wanted. Uh, so, you know, I, I just, I feel like there could have been a better, a better payoff if you had given, you know, a little bit more of those relationships and, and to really feel like, you know, he's missing all those things, you know? That's, okay. that's all. Right, right. Do you guys want to just explain a little bit? Because, I mean, I haven't seen this yet, but I've heard the stories, the whole phenomenon of people passing out oh, when they go to see Oh, good point. This. So when I went to the theaters... That's why I was going to bring it up. Someone did pass out during the <laughs> scene where he chops off his arm. And, of course, the scene isn't for, you know, the, the, the squeamish. At the same time, I think most people that were passing out were old people because they can't take it. So that's why they're, they're passing out with the scene. The scene the where he cuts off, off his arm is okay. when everyone was passing out. That's what out. I wasn't getting. What was causing it? If it was the seclusion or the drawn-out aspect of it? I don't know what was messing with people's it minds. Was, it was really it was extreme. It was extreme. It actually wasn't even that gory, but something, seeing it in the theater and just like... It's the build-up of it. The build-up and the, the, the sounds really... Shot through my head, the way just watching the anguish on his face when mm. he's trying to when he plucks the last nerve in his arm, oh. and he, and he <laughs> yells in agony, and I was on the edge of my seat. This was like a horror movie to me watching this. Yeah, it was tough to watch. Yeah, it, 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 he he goes through those things. You know, you see the thought process, and it's like first he has to break his arm, 
Then he has to puncture the skin. Then he's you the know noise he's, of him he's breaking his arm. It was like, yeah. Oh my then God. he's like cutting away, cutting away, and then he finds that nerve and he just touches it barely, and his you know he just it, screams rings. and then he hits it again. And he and he just goes crazy, and then he's like, you know, he breathes a couple times, and then goes in there to like cut it. But it's just that like uh, that anticipation, that like, oh my god, you know, I can't imagine that's something like when you cut a nerve yeah. like that, people probably you, stop breathing. You feel when it, you know, you feel that in your toes. Yeah. That's your whole body sensation, because that's you know that sends, uh, um, what's the word, you know messages to your brain like that's it's not just your arm that hurts it's your whole body so that's you know I could definitely see and understand why people uh, would have been affected but I wasn't right <laughs> basically I uh, missed the ending of the film because there were par- paramedics in the theater trying to get this guy out so yeah that was fun to watch <laughs> but yeah uh, I mean that happens at the very end too and there's maybe five to ten minutes afterwards so but uh alright I think we're done with our reviews well, segment. Well, real quick, I just want to talk about in in this movie in, in um 127 hours. There's a lot of music, a lot of music, and I didn't expect that. A lot of modern music, you know, um, which I thought was really in- an interesting choice uh, for the film. And at some points, I felt like you know maybe clashed with the film, but at some point, uh, some of the other points at the ending and. And in, sometimes in the beginning, it was just so amazing to hear these sounds of this music that, you know, it's not like classical music, it's like up, upbeat, up-tempo, kind of rock-punk right, emo. It's the, yeah, I mean, like, Raman did the uh, the score. He did the score for Slumdog Millionaire with Danny Boyle as well, and, you know, he he won awards with that. But yeah, I, I agree, but yeah, the music kind of did stand out. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I first saw the first, like, sequence... I thought I was in the mo- wrong movie theater. <laughs> and I'm just like, am I watching 127 now? Because you're seeing like, yeah, like, it's really bizarre cuts and like just weird, like people chanting and just yeah. uh, they're in a soccer stadium or something. I don't even know what I was watching, but yeah, I was so the a little DVD bit confused. sets you up for that a little oh, does bit. It? So. Okay. All right. Well, that is the hour portion for the uh, movie reviews. Stay tuned. We're just gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back with our extended review of Black Swan. We'll be right back. Well, it is Darren Aronofsky's latest film, and it got a lot of buzz, a lot of attention. It was basically an independent film, only made for, I think, around $15 million, and it grossed over $200 million worldwide. So that's quite a feat, in my opinion, and it got a lot of attention at the Oscars. It won uh, Natalie Portman her Best Actress Award. Woo-hoo. So let's talk about this film. I'm just going to give a very brief recap of the plot. And then we can get to it. It's pretty cool because we all saw it, so we're all going to have a lot of things to chime in, hopefully. <laughs> so, 
Basically, it's a ballet thriller and a psychological thriller. Natalie Portman plays the leading role of Nina, and she is uh, a ballet dancer. She is up for the role of Swan Lake, which is a very iconic and legendary ballet theater dance. And so she's up for the role of uh, Swan Lake, and there's a, a white swan and a black swan. And the story goes something where uh, a woman turns into a swan. She to, to break the spell, she has to... Uh, fall in love, but then the her, her twin or sister or like there's an evil swan that actually gets the guy, and then because she's in so much pain, she kills herself. So that's a pretty uh, mortifying story that they want to portray on theater on the stage. So Portman gets this role of Black Swan and first Swan like, and she has to play the role of White Swan and Black Swan. And throughout the film, you're like, okay, the uh, she can play the white swan very well because she's very innocent, she's very pure, she goes for perfection, but she doesn't lose herself in the role. She doesn't have that uh, sexuality that can, you know, portray the black swan perfectly. And then in comes a uh, uh, a newcomer of Lily that's played by Mila Kunis. She is very sensual. She is very sexy, and the director loves her for that aspect. She is basically the black swan in the film. She can play that role. She was born to play that role. And then there's a lot of things going on in uh, Nina's mind. You kind of get the sense that she's mentally unstable. And throughout the film, she's seeing flashes of herself. She's, she's, she's seeing things that aren't there. And then it kind of turns into a horror film in some aspects and it concludes with the the first production of Swan Lake where Natalie Portman's character dies at the end so let's talk about it what were your first impressions when you right after you saw uh, Black Swan did you have a first impression Jean? I mean I guess I was just like kind of thought to myself wow what did I just see um, I, at the very very end of the movie I think it goes to white white screen and you just hear music blasting. You hear uh, applause. Right. Oh, okay, applause. Yeah, that's I just watched it yesterday, so I know. Okay. That. <laughs> um, and I, I just remember sitting in the theater being like, wow, that was so cool. Um, just, you know, the reason being was that, because it, it was so different. I know I'm only giving my first impression, so I don't want to go in too deep. Mm. Uh, Phil, what was your first impression? I found it interesting, because the whole story uh, behind the, um, the Black Twine, the, the, the ballet that they're doing, it's um, her um, Natalie Portman's life itself portrays the the life of the Black Swan play. So, so for that itself, I, I, I like the film a lot because of that. How about you, Chris? I more along the lines of what, like uh, Sheehan was saying with the just like I felt numb at the end, and I know that whole last like twenty minutes was kind of a not a blur, but there was that whole part where you're seeing what she's seeing, but it's not really what the real reality is, and then you're like, wait, what is that? What do I... And I don't know how I feel now, because things just got flipped, and it's like, whew, you know, there's a lot to digest. And it, and it did, I think, in a sense, build up to that point, too. So it was, just, it was like you said, I think the applause at the end was a perfect, like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's take a breather now and figure out what I just watched. Oh, definitely, yeah. There was a <laughs> lot going on in the film, and it kind of, like, there were a lot of I wouldn't say twists, but there were things that after you watched the film, you kind of second think about, okay, what, what would happen in this scene? Like, did that actually happen? Was that in her mind? What did that mean? Type of thing. It, it, I think it has a great rewatchability factor to yeah. it. And uh, I did not watch it a second time in the theaters, but yes, it was, it was great watching the DVD last night, and I was trying to look for specific things this uh, go-around. 
All right. So, do we have any idea about um, Natalie Portman? Okay. Can we can we agree that her character was kind of mentally unstable? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. And well, okay. So one of the main things I think we should discuss is her relationship with her mom, Erica. Right. I think that was a very very important uh, situation throughout the entire film. And it was one that was never really just laid out in front of you. This is why they're acting this way. This is why, you know, she has a dozen, uh, you know, stuffed animals in her room. Her room's all pink. It's like she's 12 years old, but I think she plays a 28-year-old in the film. So, uh, all right, let's, let's talk about that, Shane. What do you think? Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, and I can't give credit for coming up with this, that I read in um, some review of it, uh, was that, you know, her mother is sexually abusing uh, Natalie Portman her character in the film. And uh, I thought that was really interesting, and, and the couple of reasons they, they said it, you know, was the fact that, like, very often, you know, Natalie did not sleep alone. Uh, she slept with the mother, or the mother would be in the room while she's sleeping. Um, she would change in front of the mother constantly, and this is someone who's 28 years old, you know, it's not necessarily normal things. And so they give a lot of, like, you know, suggestions that this sexual abuse might be going on. Um, the fact that there's no lock on Natalie's door, um, that, you know, to stop her mother from coming in, she has to put uh, a piece of wood to, 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 you know, wedge a piece of wood in between the floor, uh, you know, her bedpost and, and the door. I, you know, and... Um, Is there something with baths, too? I don't know if I'm remembering. Well, she took a bath, and that's where she kind of uh, touched herself, and... But, but the mother could come, like, right in or something, and it didn't seem like... Weird to the mom, but I know something. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just you know, there, you get these ideas. There's definitely something wrong with what their relationship is. We don't know. You don't. I I didn't get off of a first viewing what that is. What is wrong with that? But you can tell that's why Natalie Foreman. Uh, I'm sorry. What's her character's name in the Nina. Nina. That's why Nina is so messed up. There's something wrong with it. You know. I agree with you. Um. Well, I I actually first read that um theory. And I read that on Slash Film. It was a David Chen's theory. Though he spoke about it on their podcast when the movie came out, and I found it interesting. Though I don't really buy into that. Bill, did you really think about that theory about the uh, the mom molesting Nina? No, no, I didn't think that at all. Chris, did you? No, I thought it was just more along the lines of the mom couldn't let go, and was treating this 28 year old like her nine year old. That's the following I was getting. Right, from there's, it's so it's so thick, and I think the mom was also a dancer, I, I think, and yeah, she kind of was kind of living through her Nina's success, yeah. and maybe kind of like you know a lot a lot of parents are portrayed, and a lot of parents do that. You know, you kind of you want the best for your your child, and in a way you don't. Sometimes you can't just let go, and you can't let them do it for themselves. You kind of try to point them in the right direction as as much as you can. I think that was the theme for Finding Nemo. So. But, you know, <laughs> essentially, that was, you know, a, a sh it's a very strange relationship that they had because she is 28 years old and because she was babying her. But for anyone that really has uh, has grown up or, or dealt with a child with maybe, you know, a, a handicap or a disability that Nina did show, she was mentally unstable throughout the film, it does kind of make sense that the mom would treat her like a child so much. It's uh, you don't want to see her get hurt. You and but you know at the same time she was overbearing. You know she would just barge into. There was no privacy for Nina. But maybe that was the mom just trying to protect her all the time. 
I mean, like I said, there's a lot of things to read into it. Go yeah, because it could be it could be that whole chicken or the egg kind of thing. Is she mentally unstable because the mom treated her that way, or is the mom treating her that way because she's mentally unstable? Go ahead. Or Mark. maybe it could just be um. Well, what what the whole film the mom portrayed as like the the, the bad guy as the one who is overbearing, but maybe it's just the fact that um. Maybe in that apartment when she was younger, she was um, mentally um, unstable also. And that's why there were all these mysterious scratches on her back. And because her mother knows that, that's why she's overbearing all the time. Just uh, just to um, um, know if she's already, if her mental state is still um, <coughs> in the right direction. Right, so I, think, I think that is the most popular uh, idea for the film that that uh, Nina w has you know, grown up, she was always mentally unstable and that's why the mom was so overbearing and protective and es essentially suffocating every single move that Nina did throughout her entire life. It's, um, I mean, I, that one scene with the birthday cake when uh, Nina, gets the, uh, Nina gets the role, I mean, she still calls her mommy and stuff like that, and she gets the role, she comes home and, and the mom wants to celebrate with her and like, and then like she just gets so upset when Nina turns down. She's like, I don't need that biggest slice of the cake. She's she's willing to just throw the entire cake into the garbage. I I felt that was like really extreme. She felt so hurt because it was like Nina's success was her success, and she wanted to celebrate that no matter what. And I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of scenes that just were like, okay, what's going yeah, on there? That scene thing. that was almost like the mom wanted a big piece of cake. Yeah, so you should too. Mm -hmm. And. and I mean, did the two people really need a huge cake like that? Come on, yeah. <laughs> get, 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 get two cookies each or something. Did they, I don't remember because I had seen it in the theaters when it first came out, but you saw it last night. Did they allude to the father at all? What had happened? Or yeah, that's completely... No. Never. They never touch on it. Which is a very interesting um, topic as well. And something that, you know, yeah, it could, it could just be thrown into any interpretations. Um, do you have anything? I thought you had some. I also found that <clears throat> throughout the film... Yes, uh, like Fo said, it's kind of like the entire movie and Nina's life by getting the role of the Swan Queen was essentially, you know, her the whole movie was taking place and that whole movie was portraying the story of Swan Lake. And you you saw her, she is already the the, the white swan. She's she's good, you know, she's very pure. Yet you, you, when she gets into these cynical modes or maybe it's her mental, you know, her mental state that was getting to her. She saw herself in a darker light, in, in the shadow maybe. She's, she's walking down New York City or wherever city they're in and uh, you, you know, she sees herself you know, she, she's, in the, she's in the bathroom and she's touching herself she sees, she, she sees a picture of herself it's, it's very strange things and um, I, it's funny that Chris was saying it, but like Chris said that his fingernails hurt while watching <laughs> the film I mean, there, was, there were a lot of those horror aspects where, you know, she's peeling her skin off of her finger, her fingernails are falling off because she's scratching herself so much. But then, are those things in her head? Are those things really happening? I mean, she plucks a damn feather out of her shoulder yeah. for God's sake. Like that can't be real, can it? Type of thing. And you know, it's it's. Oh, I just gotta admit, one, the one scene that really stood out in my mind and kind of kind of haunted me for the next couple of days was when she goes to visit Beth in a hospital and she returns her things and Beth takes that knife and starts jabbing herself in the face with her knife. I was like, what the hell is going on right now? <laughs> Yet she runs into the elevator and then she drops the knife. So, like, did, did Beth stab herself? Did she have the knife? Did she stab her? Like, I, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what happened in that scene. Do you, do you guys remember that scene at all? I do. Yeah, and they don't really talk about it later on. It was like either. nothing happened. Like, So was that all in her mind, maybe? I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, is questionable whether or not it's in her mind. There's the scene where 
Nina and um, the other girl, whose name escapes me, comes back to her uh, apartment and they're, you know... Amelia uh, Kuna? Amelia Lily, yeah. Lily. Nina and Lily go back to her apartment and are making out and, and more than that and all of a sudden, you know, wakes up in the morning and she's gone and she was never there and, mm-hmm. you know... Um, Lily tells Nina that she's crazy. Like I never came over last night. We didn't hang out last night. So it's just weird, you know. It's there's so many things that uh, you you wonder about, like what what really happened. All right. For more reasons uh, than not, that was probably the most memorable scene of the film. But it was interesting when Lily was, you know, kind of performing oral sex on Nina, and she put pe- uh, peeks up her head, and then you see it's Nina. And that kind of freaked me out as well. Yeah. And then um, on the lines of uh, what Sheen was talking about with the mom, uh, the theory of the mom molesting her, um, uh, David Chen of Slash Film was saying that right after that oral sex scene, she kind of uh, says something on the lines of, like, my sweet girl, which is something that the mom said earlier in the film. That was, a, that was a, an exact quote. So, yes, that can play into... But I think that's the genius of what Aronofsky did throughout the entire film. He's throwing in things to confuse you. He's doing these things purposely just to be like... Just to make you second-guess every single scene that's going on in the film. And that's what makes it so controversial. It makes it fun to have a discussion about. It's what makes it, you know, liked, but then disliked by a lot of people. Um, do we all like this film, at least, though? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it was, I did. I liked it, it a yeah. lot. Did you find yourself... Because I had a hard time doing this relating to Nina's character and I don't want to say rooting for her but you know how you take that interest in the character and you you want them to succeed I almost I didn't really care as much I didn't I couldn't relate to her because I was I've never been like a psycho perfectionist like she was and I don't think a lot of people are I mean there's some out there but you know it was almost like a breath of fresh air when Lily's character would come into the scene and loosen her up and it's like oh alright now it's you know you can live a little bit and those were better but it was like I was almost like alright so she got the part I didn't really care that she did or if she was able to master the which I know I wasn't really the whole part of the point of the movie but I, I just it, it I thought it took away from it a little bit because I couldn't relate to the main character enough to go along with her right right I got you Mike did you were you rooting for Natalie Portman's character in the film um no not necessarily I, I think you know maybe one point here to there you know when when she was looked like she wasn't gonna get the Swan Queen, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I kind of wanted her character because you realized how devastated her character would be by not getting mm. it. So I, I guess, guess those are the points that you know you, you would root for her character. And they did make you feel bad for her mm-hmm. in certain parts because the overbearing mother, the uh, you know, the director taking advantage kind of thing. So you could sympathize with that. One thing I want to just talk about mm-hmm. real quick in the movie is there's a lot of you know a lot of sexual. I don't want to say undertones because they're they're there. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know themes. You know, like there's the dance teacher, her relationship with him, and how he, you know, was trying to take advantage of her sexually. You know, there's the fact that she's you know experimenting sexually with herself, or in her hallucinations, which we don't you know know if she's actually doing these things or not sometimes. But it it seems like there's a lot of you know like a lot of times the the things that happen to her or kind of like send her into, um, you know, these, these chaos moments is because of sexual instances. And I, you know, I, I really have to rewatch the movie and think more about that as I'm watching it to see how much those things affect her. Um, but it does seem to, to add credence to David Chen's argument sometimes about there being sexual abuse and, and her 
how when she get is involved in a sexual activity that you know it causes these um, these problems in her life. I don't know. It's, it's just it's just a, a theory. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt that Black Swan is a very sexy movie, but um, <clears throat> like like she, what Sheen was saying, yes, the uh, yeah, she was she. It just seemed like she was suppressed for so long, and, be, and, and you know because she did have a, a mental disorder, you know she does she didn't really go through the stages of like a normal child would. Mm -hmm. So okay, she's probably behind the game in the whole you know experimenting you know, masturbation type of thing, and so when she does kind of just, like, go at it, and, yeah, she, she, essentially, just, like, like what the director was telling her, just, like, you just lose yourself in it, just lose yourself, and, yes, it was, it was bringing out a darker side, and that's exactly what he wanted her to do, he wanted her to perfect the black swan, and... It's, it's weird to me that he doesn't notice that she has any mental problems at all. He spent so much time with her, you know, through all these hours and hours of rehearsal, and, you know, in the, when they hang out at night in his apartment and just, you know, backstage when they're they're working together. I mean, I, I know obviously he's got a lot on his mind, but it's like when you spend so much time with someone, wouldn't you pick up on that, you know? Well, I think he was more of a character that played an asshole. And he didn't <laughs> care. He, he, she was just so good at her role of being a ballerina that he didn't care if she did or, or did not have these uh, mental handicaps. I mean, she, he just wanted to have an, a successful theater play. And I don't know, that's what I took out from yeah. it because he did. He wasn't. A, he, he was like the bad guy as well in the film. Right. He. Uh, you, you don't really like him because of what he. he how he treats his dancers, and. Um, but yes, that was a another good point. Um, essentially, like what Phil, I want to go back to what Phil was saying. How the whole film was about you know kind of like the story of Swan Lake, and it seems like yes, okay, Nina was the white swan in the beginning, and then she kind of. Okay, let's just say Nina was a white swan in the beginning, and she needs love <laughs> to break this spell of whatever. Maybe her mental handicap. I don't know what she's breaking out of it. So then <laughs> she kind of turns in, not not her, but like Mila Kunis, uh, Lily was kind of the black swan in it. And I don't know if you, they had that one specific dancer uh, in the theater production that played the prince that uh, Natalie Portman was supposed to fall in love with or have him fall in love with. And then during the production, of uh, their first production, you see Mila Kunis, you know, kind of like flirting with that prince dancer on stage, and like they they obviously are are into each other. So in a way, maybe that is the Swan Lake of yes, the Black Swan won the guy's heart over, and then in the end, Nina kills herself. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought that was awesome, and um. I didn't pick up on that the first time around, but yeah, just taking a second close, uh, a closer look the second time around was really fun to do. Wait, what didn't you pick up on the first time? The, the whole, just just how like the whole movie was like the Swan Lake as well. Okay. I mean, and, and those specific, like, right. the Prince. No, I, I thought you were saying you didn't pick up on the fact that she killed herself. Oh, no. I that was pretty obvious. <laughs> I don't know. I was kind of waiting for it. I was hoping at the end that that was just all her in mind too. Yep. I was like, oh, yeah. she's not dead. She's there's no way she's dead, right? After this white screen, yeah. she's gonna come back to life somehow. But yes, it was uh, a tragedy, as Swan Lake is. But I mean, there is still the possibility that she hasn't killed herself, and that that was in her mind. There might you be know. Black Swan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel. If there's a sequel, I lack your Swan. <laughs> um, I guess one more point to add before we wrap things up in our extended review is that Darren Aronofsky did start out as a. Um, you know, he did The Wrestler before Black Swan, and these were supposed to be al almost the same movie. They, I think they were supposed to be in the same movie, these two characters. 
And if you think about it, the, these two movies are very similar. The two entertainers that go through uh, really, really tough and uh, vigorous routines to perform and to entertain the audience. And you see that their, their lives are kind of just like... I mean, the wrestler, Mickey Rourke's character, is just like in shambles. He's trying to get it back together. And uh, Natalie Corman's character, you know, is not in shambles, but she's just still trying to find herself type of thing. And, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 what if they were in the same movie? That could have been really interesting to watch. Yeah. That could have been really fun. You know what? I, I thought it... it, it I thought this movie was better than The Wrestler, and I really like The Wrestler. I agree with you. I like this better than The Wrestler. And it's it's funny to say, like, you know, when you watch The Wrestler, oh, well, how could you make a movie better than that, you know, along the same along the same lines, and, and he did it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I mean, we love The Wrestler, and um, I felt... I mean, we're going to... I, wa I want to discuss Darren Aronofsky's movies, this whole filmography, one episode in our podcast. I think there's a lot to talk about his style and his impact in Hollywood right now. But yes, um, it was weird that The Wrestler was kind of Darren Aronofsky's most stripped-down, most straightforward film, while Black Swan returned to his psychological, you know, like his like his pie or Requiem for a Dream or The Fountain. Those are all out-there yeah. films. And I, I felt he returned to form with that. Not not that The Wrestler was bad, but it just didn't feel like a Darren Aronofsky film, in my opinion. So are we good? We're good. We're good. We're good. All right. So thanks for listening to that. But stay tuned because we've still got some more things to talk about. we got some movie news. we got to talk about our dumb movie of the week and do some flick chart battling. Flick chart battling. We'll be right back. To the On the Movie Front podcast, and this is our third portion, and we're going to talk about movie news right now. So, I read this on the blogospheres or the interwebs, as you call them, and there's, you know, coming soon, talked about that there's going to be a sequel, or, or not sequel, a spin off to Judd Apatow's very successful film, Knocked Up. And this film is going to center around Debbie and Pete, which were the bickering married couple in the film. I thought they were hilarious in that film. They're played by Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann. And apparently this film is going to be called This Is 40. So that got me thinking, you know, Judd Apatow, he, you know, he, I think he produced Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and he had the Russell Brand character do his spinoff. Now he's kind of intrigued about this uh, married couple, and knocked up, and he wants to do a spinoff on that. And honestly, I'm looking forward to this film because I thought they were a great part of Knocked Up. Knocked Up, I enjoyed very much. So one of my favorite Apatow films, and uh, of course, anything with Paul Rudd in, and I'll watch it. So, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's going to be cool. I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of against spinoffs in certain cases, but I think that this one will actually. Be, I think it's a good idea. Plus, Paul Rudd's amazing. How, how do you not yeah, like he'll Paul be, Rudd? He'll make the movie. The one thing I think could be a downfall is they were good in that in the original, or that character development or whatever was good because it was a small dose, so to speak. If there's a full movie of it, it might get tiring. Mm -hmm. The unless he, they change a little bit, but if it's constant bickering. And it could get a little right. Yeah. Hopefully, because I, I don't know how much our 
when we're you know mid twenties, we're gonna be able to relate to it as much if they're it's a forty year old bickering couple. But it could hit a whole nother audience. Yeah. You know, you know the, the the thing about Paul Rudd, I feel like he, you know, in every single movie his characters go through change. <laughs> and something that he as an actor does so well is make that make that change relatable. Um, you know, you, you may not like necessarily like have been through that instance, but it's like you get it from when he does it. Um, and, and that's why I feel like, you know, this movie, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be about, but if I had to guess, <laughs> I would say that it's, you know, it's probably about these, you know, you're stuck in this where you have your wife and your kids and you're kind of not sure what, you know, where you're going in life or what you're doing. And, and I feel like, you know, it'll be eventually how coming to love, <laughs> just accepting hmm. them and, and, and being okay with that stuff, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, that's essentially the, the bit and pieces of, w- of what we see him doing already in the film. In Knocked Up, right? Where he sneaks off to yeah. go play fantasy football or baseball with his friends, you know? Um, it's that, you know, that, you know... The yeah, it could, it could be very formulaic because their, their marriage was kind of put to the test in Knocked Up as well. But that's, you know, on top of that, you know, the sister was having a baby with this, this loser that, that smokes pot all the time. So, but I think it could be... Uh, you know, coming of age, maybe, formulaic, yes, it's going to be funny, it'll probably be rated R, raunchy, like, Avatar likes it, mm-hmm. and, um, I think it could be fun to watch, though, because, yes, we do like Paul Rudd. Did you have something to say? Well, I was just going to ask, did they report that this is happening, or that just Judd Avatar wants to do it? Well, it says, uh, it, there's, there's something on IMDb about, um, un- an untitled, uh, project from Judd Avatar, and it should be out by June 1st. Oh, so they are going... Of what year? Of this, not this. Okay, I was gonna say <laughs> with Megan Fox. <laughs> oh, that is right. There, there has been like rumors that this this film was going to be about Paul Rudd having a middle age crisis and then oh. falling in love with Megan Fox or having something with <laughs> Megan Fox in it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's it's, un- it's unclear on um, what role Megan Fox will play in this film, but she has been assigned to it. Oh, okay. And, so um, that's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> and I also read that uh, Judd Apatow, he considers himself, and he, he, he hit the game with as a television writer. So when he writes these characters, he sees, like, way down the line. He writes these characters for Knocked Up. He's like, I want to take this couple and make him go further. You know, I want to extend it. I want to write, you know, 80 more episodes about the, these characters. So I think that's really cool. And he does, he does write some hilarious characters in his films. And I look forward to seeing this film. Me too. All right, moving on to our dumb movie of the week. Now, so far we talked about Napoleon Dynamite and The Happening, and those are two films that Sheehan and I absolutely hate, and we think they're stupid and should have never been made. Well, what is our pick this week, Michael? Transformers. Now, a lot of people just probably turned off our podcast (laughs) because they like Transformers, and there is a huge fan base, no matter what Transformers will present themselves as to be, so, why do we hate Transformers so much? For one, I didn't like it because... Alright, I was never really into Transformers. I think Phil said he watched the uh, yeah. with the cartoons yeah. and everything. I was never into that, so maybe this film wasn't for me. This film might have been for the fanboys that just want to relive their childhood and uh, you know do it with live action. And Michael Bay probably is, is a good choice for these Hollywood blockbusters. But not my choice to do this film. Mike, why don't you like this? Well, I mean, I was a Transformers fan. Oh, I watched okay. almost all of them, including Beast Wars, which was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, this this movie, uh, it just, uh, just fell flat in so many areas. Um, should we just... Can I get into it already, Rob? Go for should it. We? Okay. 
my biggest complaint with this film is the action sequences, um, specifically involving the robots, you know, uh, the Autobots, and, and when they're fighting each other, they're rolling across the camera. I mean, these things are 3D generated. They, you know, they're they're created. So we want to see the whole thing in battle. We don't want to see their legs walking across the screen. You know, we don't. We want to be able to understand what's happening. It was just was so fast, and you only got to see such a minuscule area of what was happening. It's just like it seemed cheap. Yeah, you know? I think he was trying to go for that, like showing the immensity of them, but it kind of just it didn't work. No, and. Like you were saying, they're rolling around. You couldn't tell who was who. You yeah. didn't know who to root for. Right. And they didn't look different enough. You know, I, I, they could have highlighted colors more. You know, made the Autobots a little bit more blue or something. I, I don't know, something small that wouldn't have maybe would have been annoying to the the fanboys, but like for a general public, wouldn't have mattered. So you yeah. know, and that's what the movie's playing for a general public. It's not made for the fanboys. Not when Michael Bay is producing it. Yeah. You know, he's making a movie for everybody. Yeah, I agree because that was also a big complaint of mine. I had no idea what was going on, and maybe that has to do with I wasn't a fan of Transformers. I didn't even know throughout the film who were still good and bad. You know, they were just shooting at each other the whole time. I'm just like, is is that Bumblebee dude a good guy? Is there a helicopter? Is there a car turning? In? And I was so confused. And uh, that that that's not something you want to your audience thinking at all. No. And uh, uh, maybe it is because. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, they made films, they make a lot of films based on TV shows or, you know, books and things like that. And I feel a lot of the times they just assume that the audience is going to know already who, who the characters are or, like, who's good, who's bad, and what does this mean. And I just, I didn't assume that in the film. So, yes, Michael Bay does some really fast cuts, a lot of explosions, action sequences. I just got lost in the whole maze of those things. <laughs> plus, plus the dialogue in the movie was pretty awful. Like, just the, the, when they're talking to each other, you're like, no one says that. You know, it, it was just was so bad. And I feel like before this movie, Shiloh LeBleu, uh, LeBluff or whatever his name is, was a fairly good actor, you know? Um, but it's just when you have someone just saying, you know, Whoa! I think he was out of his <laughs> element in that movie too. Yeah. He's a more of a quick-witted, you know. I don't know. I can't really explain it, but not an action star. Right. That, that he seemed out of place in. It didn't help that also. I mean, yeah, great. It was great to look at Megan Fox, but she was whatever. She wasn't anything special. Either. Right. And the movie dragged. Yeah, the movie and it's was also, super it's, long. You're saying about like basing, you know, movies that are based on books and other things, TV shows. Usually, people complain that they were too short or stuff was cut out. And lo- I feel like this was like this went on forever. Yeah, this was like oh, they, okay, oh, these guys are in it. Oh, the oh, wow, okay, you know, yeah. I forgot uh, the actor's name. You mentioned it before we uh, started the podcast. John oh, John Tataro. Yeah, John his Tataro. whole his whole thing. It was like coming out of nowhere, and it made no sense, and <laughs> you know, it didn't really advance the storyline whatsoever. And there was a lot of things that just didn't fit. They tried to put too much into it. Uh, you know, it just it was a mess. It was a mess of a movie. And I was so surprised that people were saying that it was the best film ever when it <laughs> came out. And I was just like, you know, I just... You know, it's one of those things I'm like, am I crazy? You know, like, am I the only one not seeing this? Like, or, or I, understanding it? I think our age also may have just missed the target audience again with these this kind of movie where it was that 14, 15-year-old would really be wowed by everything. And maybe not care so much that he didn't follow the story. But my experience is that people older than me were saying how good it was. Because they liked the original, so they're probably going to like no matter what they put out for this. 
Mm, I guess so. I guess <laughs> like you said, we did just miss the cut on this. I think we missed know. it in both ends. Right, right. We were in the middle. Yeah, of but I mean, I watched it. I still didn't <laughs> think it was true to form of what the original series was. You know, there weren't people in the, in the original. That's true. There, it was just all robots. So <laughs> That's true. That's a big difference. Um, you know, it was a lot of added stuff. I mean, it was a completely different uh, undertaking <clears throat> of it. You know, interpretation of it. So I don't know. Right, essentially the main problem I have with the film is that I think I actually do pay attention when I watch a film, and we were kind of discussing it earlier before we did this podcast, we couldn't really remember what the movie was about too much. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good and time. I don't think that's our fault, honestly. <laughs> I, we couldn't, re- we, were, we, were, we were discussing scenes that were remembered, and you know, only half of us remember certain scenes. It just, it wasn't memorable. And that's that's a bad thing in a film when it's not memorable when you can just throw it in a pile of every other summer summer blockbuster with a lot of explosions, you know it doesn't stand out and that I think was Transformers' problem. But hey, it was successful. It made a lot of money. They made a sequel. Still made a lot of money. Whatever. They're they're getting theirs and, and the we third just installment is coming out. So yeah. So, <laughs> so yippee yeah, for we that. Something right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get it, but whatever. All right. So that's our dumb movie of the week. Let's go on to our flick chart battle. Flick chart battle. Plug it, Mike. All right. So <laughs> www.flickchart.com, uh, one word, is uh, if you haven't listened to our podcast, it's a website that um, put pins two movies up against each other, and you get to pick which one's better. And it also keeps track of the movies and how you rate them, so you can have a nice top. Uh, if it's in my case, top two thousand list of of movies. So let's battle. Dun dun dun. Alright, so we got our first matchup. And if my computer ever decides to load, okay, we have Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind versus Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh hands down yeah. goes to <laughs> Eternal <laughs> Sunshine. Absolutely. That movie is amazing. Amazing. And our second matchup of this afternoon Wow, my computer is not cooperating with me today. So what do you guys, what do you guys want to talk about until this loads? <laughs> we could just pick... Why don't we just do random ones off your shelf? Hey. <laughs> You're just <laughs> dropping so much <laughs> right now. Inception versus The Social Network. Well, those are the two greatest films of last year. How are we going to do that? That's why I picked them. <laughs> what would you pick? Inception versus uh, The Social Network. If I had to choose? Yeah. Which one I liked better? Oh, man. I would probably choose Inception. I would go Social Network. Ooh, I really ho, ho, like Social ho, ho. Network. I think Social Network I like was the, better, but Inception I, is my favorite, more favorite movie. I don't know what I... I could, you brought the question <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> we have to hear an answer right now. Um, I think I would pick uh, Inception. <laughs> not, right. not by much, though. Flick Chart Battle is now back up. So we have <laughs> The Breakfast Club versus Spider-Man 3. The Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club. Classic. Wally versus <laughs> <laughs> Wally versus Return of the Jedi. Wow, that's an interesting match. That's a really good yeah. match. Now, which one? Return of the Jedi. That's which number? That's the, the second one. Oh, the sixth, yeah. the, the third, <laughs> the yeah. last one. Okay. Yoda dies, man. Okay. <gasps> Spoiler alert! <laughs> Isn't that the one where we find out that it's his father? No, that's the, um, the second one. Second. So it's that's the, the best one. So yeah, so it's the. Weakest of the three originals? I would say it's yeah. the weakest of the three originals. Wally yeah. was really good. I'd probably go Wally. Yeah, I'd say Wally. I'm going with Wally as well. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Alright, I don't know how <laughs> you were. <laughs> you guys <laughs> there. The Incredibles versus Apocalypse Now. 
Oh man. Uh, um, I did not like Apocalypse Now very much, so I picked The Incredibles. I, I Apocalypse Now is a very interesting movie. I I, I have not seen that. But I when I for the first time I saw The Incredibles, I was not a big fan of it, and I was told I had to watch it again because I was crazy, <laughs> and I actually really enjoyed it the second time around. Maybe I was a bad experience, didn't pay attention. To Incredibles that. is one of Pixar's best, no, so it's gonna be incredible. <laughs> What about next? Chopping Thunder versus Dogma. Ooh, <laughs> I like this matchup. That's a good matchup. That too. is. Both of these movies are awesome. <laughs> I'm going to just go out there and pick Chopping Thunder because it was awesome. And Dogma's good as well, but I think Chopping Thunder yeah. has a level of awesomeness that Dogma did not reach. <laughs> I, and I like the style of the Tropic Thunder kind of movies more so than Dogma. I'm going to go Tropic Thunder as well. Phil? I mean, did you see Dogma? Yeah, a long time ago. I, I like Dogma a lot, actually, but uh, but Tropic Thunder has Tom Cruise in it. Yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> Tropic Thunder because how they um, it, it wasn't a, a serious movie, and it kind of um, it didn't completely mock the the filming industry, but it did in like a in a tasteful way. So I like so, so I would pick Tropic Thunder. Well, I, I would pick Dogma. Okay, you lose. I <laughs> <laughs> you I'll go first. Out number three to one. <laughs> a Bug's Life versus Rocky. Uh, clearly, A Bug's Life. <laughs> <laughs> We're picking Rocky for this one. Yes. Moving on. Yes, Rocky. Well, a Bug's Life was good. It was, it was very Honestly, enjoyable. I like the bottom of the better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gladiator versus Clerks. Wow. Hands down, Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, but Clerks was so good. Yeah, Clerks was so it was, funny. It was. It was such a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> Casino Royale versus Batman Begins. Batman Begins. Yeah, Batman Batman begins. begins it is. Okay, let's do two more. Men in Black Dose. That's two. Versus Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's the original. I want to wow. go Willy Wonka. Yeah. yeah. If it was Men in Black it's like one. If it was yeah. Men in Black like one versus <laughs> the second Charlie yeah. and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> you know, maybe it was sequel hey, versus yeah. sequel. We liked the something. second Charlie. I did. I did. <laughs> So we're picking Willy Wonka, and our last matchup of the afternoon is A Beautiful Mind versus Train Spotting. This is a really good matchup. Train Spotting uh. is one of those movies that is very iconic, is very cult, uh, has a huge cult Definitely following. Definitely has a huge cult following, like Mike just said. I, I, I feel like. <laughs> Thank you for that, Rob. <laughs> I feel like I would pick You're Train welcome. Spotting over A Beautiful Mind. I think I don't know, man. <laughs> I like both films a lot. Uh, I feel like A Beautiful Mind was better, though I might like Train Spotting more because I think I could watch that more than A Beautiful Mind. I don't think I've watched A Beautiful Mind since I've seen it. Did Beautiful Mind win Best Picture? Yes, I think. <laughs> or did he win Best Lead Actor? No, he won for Gladiator oh, and should have won for A Beautiful Mind, but he did something stupid and. Was it a telephone at some that point? Was all, yeah. That was all happened. I mean, I didn't. I haven't seen Train Spotting, but I really like Beautiful Mind. I'm gonna go with Train Spotting, and that's gonna be our final answer. Dun dun dun. <laughs> that's just silly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening to yeah. our episodes podcast. What were you gonna say? Yes, thank you. <laughs> really appreciate it. <laughs> um, let's see. Let me just throw out all of our information so you can give us some feedback if you want to. We have an email. It's on the movie front at hotmail.com. If you want to visit our blog, it's otmf-podcast.blogspot.com. And you can hit up 
Sheen and I on Twitter, but that will be on the blog information, so we won't blurt that out right or now. Or on our Facebook page. Oh, you want to give out our real names now? Yeah, th- we already said our real names. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we do have a Facebook page. It's uh, actually, I don't, I don't know what the Facebook page is actually. It's the just, URL I is. think it's just, no, I, we'll have it's to look not. up the URL and tell you next time, so you'll have to listen to our <laughs> next episode. You <laughs> must. Or you can email <laughs> Rob for information. <laughs> Do that, yes, do that. <laughs> Email me. All right, well, thanks for listening, and I hope you come back next week because we sh- will have a better episode next week. All right? You better. Adios. See you. Bye.